I shot it on regular Fuji 4x5 yeah. for ages. And then when that ran out, I got a converter to shoot on like whatever the size down is that you can also mm -hmm. shoot on medium formats. But so it's like the full frame of that. And when that got threatened to go out of stock, I bought, I still have so much. I bought. So I was like paranoid. Maybe I bought enough to go run for the show to run 15 years or something. <laughs> I bought so much Polaroid. I still have an insane amount of Polaroid and I wouldn't shoot it on any, I wouldn't use it for anything else because I was yeah. so paranoid for years that I would run out and then I would have to end the series early. <laughs> Mandy is a photographer and producer living on the west side of LA who recently put out her first book, Super Serious, an oral history of Los Angeles independent stand-up comedy. The book is a celebration of not asking for permission, making things happen, and the connective power of stand-up comedy from an era when we could still gather jam-packed in tiny venues. This conversation is an honest reflection of pursuing personal projects and trying to balance them in with the rest of life's responsibilities. And we moved to LA together, and then I was like, I think freshly minted like almost 22, like okay. I was 21. Uh, and so then um, I just got a job, you know? Nice. I ended up uh, photo producing, was kind of where I ended up falling for a really long time. And Joel was working in entertainment as an assistant. And he left his last assistant job. He had been running, helping his boss run like a weekly night at the Laugh Factory. Okay. And so when he left that job, he was like, I don't really know what I want to do, but I want to keep producing comedy. So that's when we started Super Serious Show. Um, and we always okay. knew we wanted to work together. And so then as Super Serious Show kind of evolved naturally, we started um, doing more things. So a lot of it was like live event production for a long time. And then... I don't know, like four, I guess it's been like five or six years ago now. Oof. Uh, we pushed into like doing content stuff, you yeah. know, as, as, as everyone in Los Angeles eventually does. So, <laughs> you know, um, you know, eventually are like, oh yes, that is, that is where we find money and things and yeah. more creative fulfillment. So, so uh, yeah. So when you started this super serious show, was there like a grand vision there that you were like we're gonna run this for 10 years oh man god awesome. i wish i wish we were that that clever and smart no we just it was really simple we just wanted to be part of the community we really liked doing uh the show with his ass boss um not because of his boss but just because we liked doing the show and working with comedians yeah um and it was fun and it seemed like something that we could do like live comedy you know in the before times I had a fairly <laughs> like low bar for entry like if you got a show together and you got comedians there and you got an audience there like you had a comedy show there yeah. wasn't like a chain of approval that you had to go through that somebody had to be like you are now allowed to do a comedy show you know like we agree or whatever yeah. um so you can just you can just do it you know and so we had an idea for a show that kind of was combined more of what we wanted a show to be like we wanted it to be more of like a night out where there was like a food truck and free beer and wine and like you could catch up with your friends before the show like in a little pre-party but also be done by 10 and yeah. be home because people have jobs and lives <laughs> and uh we started producing it at smashbox studios because we couldn't find any other place to do it and that was like a fun overlap of my photo production was that um 
I just, I knew people there. That's where I worked with, uh, that's mm-hmm. the studio I worked with the most. And I asked them and they liked, like the person that was in charge of that decision just liked comedy. And she was like, sure. So, <laughs> and it was like, great. Were you still, sh- like, were you still shooting and being active? as a I wasn't up to that point. I wasn't really yeah. shooting at all. I was just producing. I had gotten kind of disillusioned by the photo industry and my knowledge and capacity of it up to that point I felt yeah. like I felt like every photographer was just like a real piece of shit <laughs> yeah like they were just well. all really mean and selfish and like divas and monsters they all become like monsters mm-hmm. and I was like oh if this is what being a photographer is like I don't like I don't know if I'm cut out for this like this isn't who I am and I don't want to become what these people are and I kind of watched it happen to like young photographers who have gotten successful and then I enjoy their company and with, you know, when they were younger and then um, they were, you know, not as great when they were at older. And um, I just kept being like, I don't want to, I don't know if this is really my career path. Yeah. And but so there, I hadn't, Oh, go ahead. Um, no, finish that thought. And then, no, I'll... but so I hadn't really shot anything yeah. until the super serious show and then Joel was like well we need photos of the comedians to put up on the website to like like a comedy wall so people can see who's done the show both audience and comedians alike and we can get more SEO on the website yeah so then I started shooting the portraits and then everything kind of came in a lot of ways came from that yeah so okay like why do you think there's a tendency for like a certain type a photographer because like I know the type of like douchey <laughs> dude you're talking about and I, and I, I mean it I, wasn't exclusive it wasn't just men but it was no 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 I, I mean <laughs> I feel like dude's kind of like a general neutral anyways um but like and like even like visual artists and like different type of mediums like it seems mm-hmm. like people get wrapped up in something and they kind of just become too mighty but like I find that with comedians you don't get that for the most part yeah I mean to do comedy and to write new material you have to be willing to go on stage in front of a room of strangers and tell them your ideas into a microphone and they get to decide if it's good and so it's there's a a level of that that is always humbling where I've watched very established very famous comedians try out new bits and they're rough because they're new. <laughs> they haven't said them out loud yet. They haven't worked on them. They haven't tweaked them. It takes a while to make a bit. And um, and so it's. I think it's a, always a process. Also, it takes a really long time. And you're built, you're, you're like, your career as a comedian is built with other comedians. Mm-hmm. And it's more collaborative. Like you're, it's, you're, mm-hmm. you're by yourself on stage, but there is a camaraderie and a collaborative spirit, I think, in the comedy community. Whereas I think sometimes photographers or other artists can get very isolated and find other people in their profession as competition. And Mm -hmm. so they don't work with them or talk to them or have strong relationships with them. And so they don't get like, they're always like in a feedback loop of themselves, I think more. Mm and less in a collaborative environment where there's multiple voices in the room sometimes, so. Yeah, well, like, that's my 
one of my biggest concerns about like I guess like uh, the the creative pursuits as like a photographer and especially like in the modern times where it's like you don't you don't necessarily need a community anymore to like create and publish work like you can do that all with your laptop in your basement and I think there's like something and like what like really got me excited about the super serious show is just that it's like when you bring creatives together and you like allow them a place to experiment and connect and like encourage each other and also like hold each other accountable like I think it just really uh, pushes the work forward as opposed to this kind of like competitive thing that photographers can fall into yeah I mean I think comedy in general I mean there's lots of competitiveness in comedy Mm -hmm. I don't want it to sound like it's like a cakewalk like but you know you're you are competing with your friends and I think for the most part you know and this is not to overgeneralize, but it's talked about a little bit in the book, but you know, it's like you're competing with everyone, but you're also happy when they win Mm -hmm. because like if something is kind of weird or kind of in your lane and it happens or it happens for someone who's kind of in your lane, then it's not that there isn't a chance that you can't also do something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's more of more likely maybe that you will be able to, you know, it's like a rising tide will raise all ships a little bit more in Mm -hmm. comedy. I feel like than maybe in photography Mm -hmm. in a way, because I also, I think photographers are very dispersed, you know, like, and they have teams of assistants and stuff that they work with or whatnot. But, you know, I think as a whole, like, it's not like you're seeing people every single night, to get up on stage and in a green room and catching up with them and mm-hmm. like comedians in a green room. It's, I think it's said in the book, like it's like coworkers, like, you know, it's like the people you check in with and like, maybe you haven't seen them in six months, but in order to do comedy for the most part, you're going backstage, you know, at least a handful of times a week, if not every night, I'm sure most comedians would like that, you know, but, and you're seeing other people, you're watching other people's comedy, you're interacting with them, like a photographer interacting in that capacity with another photographer or that many photographers, just, it just doesn't like happen. There's not really like a space even for it to be, you know? So it's not necessarily like a chosen thing, you know, I think it's just harder, you know, to find that it just is a different way of, which is, which is why I think, and what I talk about a lot in the book is like, I think that the community that's built around comedy is, is different and unique in the, in that way because of how it's built from other artists and other arts, because it's a more of a forced community that's put upon you from open mics all the way to like lineup shows to going on the road where you take people with you, you know, and et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. Is there, is there like any lessons that you have learned working with comedians that you've applied to your photography i think uh it's just about being like i shoot a lot of comedians yeah uh um i think it's just about being more relaxed i don't know i think that what i really learned through the process like i would always joke that if i got back to photography early in super serious days it would be like more organically and when i started producing super serious show and started shooting these portraits backstage of the comedians people started asking me to do more stuff and I would Mm. just say yes. And then I think being more open to things like open to the path that, you know, life takes you and probably I'm probably a more collaborative 
person mm-hmm. because of it, because working in other parts of entertainment are more collaborative and, um, you know, uh, producing a show is collaborative. You have to have a good team. You have, you know, it's just, I don't know. I think that in general, producing has made me a better photographer because I have just more skills that I bring to the table where mm-hmm. I've had to think about it from the other side more and then also execute it so that it's not just like this one solo vision. It's like, oh, okay, I want this. And that means that all of these other things have to happen, you know, and like trying to set a mood and a set. I don't know. That's not a very good answer. <laughs> no, I think that's a pretty good, pretty good answer. Um, okay, so then, so, oh man, okay. So like shooting the portraits was like, that was really just because you guys needed SEO for like the website or? Yeah, I mean, it was because we wanted to have a website where like we could point to it and be like, these are all the people who've done the show. So Mm -hmm. like when we're reaching out to like Weird Al or um, Nick Kroll or something, it can look like, it can be be like, here, you can check out our website and you know, you can click on this link to see all the performers who've done the show. And then if you're a comedian who doesn't know these two producers who don't perform stand-up, you can click on the link and you can be like, oh, I see Sarah Silverman's in the show and Reggie Watts is in the show. Oh, okay. This is like a legitimate show. Yeah. And like, if you see other people that you know who've done it, you know, and then, um, and, and then, yeah. And then as then like to drive people to the site. So if someone's searching, like, how can I see Reggie Watts in LA, you know, maybe yeah. our website comes up as a thing you know so it's like a little bit of both like we wanted audience members if somebody was like curious about it and like randomly ended up on our page and they were like oh who has performed on the show we wanted them to be able to be excited because not always do people who come to live comedy shows especially when they're new to it they don't maybe always reckon like remember everyone's names mm-hmm. but so like a list of names they would maybe be like i don't i don't know yeah but like seeing, oh, I know that who that guy is. I've seen that guy. Or, oh, I've seen that guy in that Comedy Central thing or on Conan or, you know. And so it's an easier way to get people, you know, excited um, about it and stuff. And it wasn't until like five or six years into the show that I started even like thinking about putting together a book. Because it just okay. wasn't, it wasn't like, I didn't start this series to put together. I know it sounds like you would want to be like, and then I started this series with the plan to shoot it for 10 years. And it's my master plan. I'm going to create this giant book, but I really didn't. Um, and then it took a really long time to find a, a book agent who would mm-hmm. do a photo book that took like a year until one of my friends finally introduced me to somebody. I'm sure there's a shorter path to that, but I was also doing other things. Yeah. Um, and then it took like, cause I'm always doing too many things. I took like another year me to like write the proposal and then it took like four months or something or six months to like sell it and then I did it very quickly yeah I think we sold it in like April and the layouts were like done and like so I sold it in like April of 2019 oh shit uh the layout like the draft was done and in by November I did all the interviews in the summer and then like the layouts were like finalized in January we went to print in COVID in yeah, March. That's, that's, <laughs> that's no joke quick. That's like... Well, because we were way. trying to time it with the 10-year. Yeah. Like, we thought uh, that okay. that would be, like, a really nice thing. And the 10-year would have been... Well, I guess it still was. But 
we didn't get to have a show, but the tenure was uh, July. Yeah. So we were trying. So it, so the tenure would happen in July, and then the book would have come out. Uh, the book did come out in August, and so it you know it would have kind of tried to dovetail into that kind yeah. of like experience a little bit. So man, COVID ruining everything. <laughs> but okay, but like I really appreciate that approach to it because I was recently having a debate with one of my photographer friends, and I think like photographers can be really bad about this when they're thinking about put, you know pursuing a creative project where it's like they it's like they need to have that end vision and then like work backwards and like try to like mm-hmm. line up perfectly and then they end up not doing anything and I think this approach of like oh I'm going to like start shooting these things and then five years you're into it you're like there might be a project here like I think that's more like holistic and honest and allows like, I think as a creative, like, you just need to be in motion. And that's the aspect of stand-up comics that, like, I love the most. Yeah, I think that there is a, a bit of a formula to a degree with photography and interest, I think, on a art level, you know, like, which, you know, or a book level, which is, I think, time plus photography, right? So, like... Mm. Um, you know, there's tons of, um, uh, and I have her book and I always forget her full name, but um, I think it's Vivian something, the nanny from New York in the 50s. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, you know, she has all these really cool street photo images and they're beautiful. But if she had taken those images like in that time and day to like a gallery, they wouldn't have been interested in them, right? So like, no. they're interesting now because of the time that has passed with them. Um, so I think that to a very large degree, I mean, I think that these, but my portraits are beautiful and I've always liked them. I think they're very cool. What I think makes them extra interesting is the time. And, you know, it is capturing some of the comedians when they, like 10 years ago when they were really young. And then now, you know, and having that more of a record of it, I think is what gives it that little bit of extra interesting edge. And then and then combining it with like the oral history part, which yeah. was something that, you know, like when I was talking to my book agent about it and she was like, well, what kind of book do you want to make? And, and like, go look at a bunch of photo books. Like, just go look at a bunch, like even ones mm-hmm. that like don't apply to like what you're doing, like figure out. And I was like, I just don't want it to be like page after page, which it still is of portrait, but just like full blade page portrait, yeah. full blade page. Like, like I was like, oh my God, how boring. And so I thought that, and I was like, I don't want to write about the comedy community and pontificate my own opinions only because that's not, doesn't seem representative. No. And so that's kind of how we came, I came up with the oral history part of interviewing and just like talking to a bunch of comedians kind of around a handful of subjects. But I think that sometimes people can get stuck on the idea that they're going to have this great thing. And then when they work backwards from it, they don't realize that in the creation of said thing, things change, life happens. You might take detours and get pushed aside or whatever, but sometimes that that is part of the process and part of the work. Hmm. And so I think looking at your, and my, I have a really good artist friend who I think has helped me kind of think about things more like this, but looking at your work as more of your practice and like what is that saying about your practice Mm. as a photographer and like what is it saying about who you are as a photographer and like who you are and what kind of work you want to make and how is that reflective in a personal project and how is it reflected in commercial work and how is it reflected in weddings or portraiture and how do all those pieces tie together 
to make your, to become your practice. Mm -hmm. And then, so then you start to pursue a project, like you're interested in, I don't know, whatever, you know, photographing sheep farms or something, you know? And so, so that might take you four or five years to do and, you know, but, and in between that, you might have a kid or get married or divorced or whatever and like life and your perspective of that might shift and like of the project might shift but then that should be part of the project because mm-hmm. what is interesting in people's work as all artists is their perspective on it and their thought you know the way that they see that thing is what they're sharing not just like the thing I don't know no I yeah no I love that and <laughs> yeah the like the shifting of like I can I don't even know how to describe yeah but like the shifting from viewing like the creative pursuits to more of a practice and I'm actually reading like Seth Godin's new book that's called I'm pretty sure the practice which is like all about that um <laughs> is because like it allows you like it's like this thing that you keep developing and that you need to be showing up like yeah like day after day and like it slowly tweaks and I think like often as like photographers that like it needs to be perfect before they even put it out and then it just kind of cuts them off from being able to like create or even to start to develop that voice and discover who they are as an artist yeah yeah there's some you know photos in the book that are from the first show and some from the early shows Mm -hmm. before I would say that I really like mastered like the look of these photos um but I didn't redo them and I mostly because I didn't have time but also I was like it's good to show like an evolution of what this work was like this work was a process of me figuring out what I wanted it to look like and how I was going to do it and and it's fine that they're not all perfect and that and in fact it's better it's more interesting it it shows the evolution of me as a photographer and the evolution of the show and these comedians and uh, I think that you can get really bogged down where you think that like in photography you think that everyone's work that you see that there isn't like other versions of that or older versions or different versions of it you just see one version of it you know and I think it's I just think it's more interesting like to see the whole picture of it you know and Mm -hmm. and and it's okay if it's not always perfect or some of it's like not great but I think that if you look at if you look at your career more as a practice and more as an entirety instead of like tiny jobs or tiny projects, mm-hmm. it helps you develop your voice and like your opinions and like what you want to try to say. And I also think it helps you set goals and find ways to push yourself and challenge yourself and um, keep things interesting. Yeah. So then okay because like what i found uh like really impressive about the project is for one like you're you're choosing to shoot it on like polaroid which like good luck like that's never going to be perfect because like polaroids are incredibly like well they can just be bastards you know like they're kind of moody and all over the place but then you were able to like there's it's it's coherent and it's like fairly consistent like is there was there a trick uh photoshop (laughs) (laughs) i mean there's like i developed like over time i developed like basically like 
layers that I go yeah. on every image. And then they're tweaked a little bit depending on the Polaroid. Like if the Polaroid's more magenta in this pack yeah. or more, more cyan or more red or whatever. Uh, some of them I shot on like the very first ones I shot on like expired Polaroids. So they were actually okay. bright blue. Mm -hmm. And so I shifted them into yellows, which is how we started with like the yellow look. Yeah. I shot it on regular Fuji 4x5 yeah. for ages. And then when that ran out, I got a converter to shoot on like whatever the size down is that you can also mm -hmm. shoot on medium formats. But so it's like the full frame of that. And when that got threatened to go out of stock, I bought, I still have so much. I bought. So I was like paranoid. Maybe I bought enough to go run for the show to run 15 years or something. <laughs> I bought so much Polaroid. I still have an insane amount of Polaroid and I wouldn't shoot it on any, I wouldn't use it for anything else because I was yeah. so paranoid for years that I would run out and then I would have to end the series early. Um, and, or because then Polaroid shot up to like $30 a box and you're yeah, like, that's like that's insane from $8 or whatever. Um, but no, like scanning it, and I've used the same scanner the whole time. It's not a great scanner. I wish I had yeah. a better scanner, but it's a fine scanner. Um, you know, I scan them large so I wouldn't have to rescan because I'm no, no dummy. You know, I was yeah. like, oh, if I ever want to print these big someday, I don't want to have to redo all of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I just like kind of slowly figured it out. You know, I did a lot of my what my normal retouching style is, it kind of mixed with like this look that I finally figured out. Um, and people seem to really like it. And mm -hmm. so I just kept developing it and just stuck with it. Um, but yeah, it's so over time, it got more consistent. But every now and then I would still get a Polaroid pack that would just be like weirder or like the mm -hmm. photos would be darker or something. You just are like, I guess this is as close as I can get it, you know? Yeah. The greener. Like the last handful of shows I did, like they were like greener. And so I had to, I kept futzing with them. And you can really get in your head about it with color stuff, which is one of the oh, yeah. reasons why I use Image Salon um, for so much of my stuff because <laughs> I get real in my head about color, like matching and like how I want it to look and stuff. And so there are some that got updated like up into the last minute where I couldn't anymore because I was like, yeah. oh, I think it's too cyan. You know, what I, mean? <laughs> I was like, next to the other one, she looks sickly. She needs more red. And so, but um but that was just a few of them, you know. I feel yeah. like once I kind of put them to bed, I was like, you're fine. <laughs> you're done. Okay, so I got two questions from that. So, like, with, because this is something that a lot of photographers struggle with. And even, you know, when editors are starting at Image Salon, it's like, for when I started here as an editor, it was like, yeah, definitely a hard learning curve. It's like, how do you... <laughs> How do you know when it's like good enough and you can step away from it? Because with art and photography, like like that, like you can constantly be like tweaking it, and then it's like, well, here's the deadline. Like the presses mm -hmm. need to run for this book. Um, I would say for the most part, I used to. I guess I used to retouch the monthly before the next show. Okay early in the series like the first five or six years so that meant I had shorter windows of turnaround time and so at some point I was just like I don't have time like this is fine um and for the most part I always felt pretty good about them as I started to like even out the layers in photoshop and like the how I would kind of get to the look, you know, like where how to shift, oh, this goes here and this goes here. And like, you know, it kind of becomes repetitive to a degree. And that was easy. 
um, to kind of smooth out the process. And then the retouching is always kind of the same. I don't overly retouch them. Um, I don't take out Polaroid noise because that's uh, a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, Polaroid noise stays, unless it's like over their eyes or over their, like something that's like specific and it looks bad. Yeah. So I leave all that stuff in. That helps a lot. Um, you know, so you're not trying to make the photo look perfect. You're letting it look like a Polaroid, um, you know, and so, and, but you also don't want it, you don't want it to stick out from the others. So I would say each one takes me about 15 minutes to retouch okay. fully. And then if for some reason it's taking me any longer, I try to be like, what's, what am I doing? Like what's happening? Like what's going on? Because as the years went on, I would like backlog them and I do batch retouching them every like six months or a year okay. and I get like that, get totally caught up. And then I was doing it, I'd set us like two or three days okay. and I would just batch retouch for two or three days. And then you're just trying to crank through them. You're trying to get in a flow and just like yeah. bang them out, you know, and you're just mostly I'm like the two that are shot side by side because each person gets two those need to match you know and they I don't want them you know like color wise they I don't want one of them to be red and one of them to be cyan or something and then they kind of just need to match color wise through the whole you know for the whole series to some extent you know close enough but the color is more of what I've always struggled with with them making sure that they weren't too yellow or too red or too cyan or the blacks didn't block up but the actual retouching part of it was always fairly simple for me because I just wanted them to look like them. I didn't want them to be overly glossy or anything. Yeah. So. so then when you're starting a creative project, like what do you think you, like what are the like need to have? Because like you mentioned that like the scanner you have is like not the best and you kind of wish you had more and like whatever. And I find that often like kind of, I guess, like younger photographers or like emerging photographers, like get in this trap of like, I need like the best thing before I can start. Sure. I think that like, yes, uh, I think it's a great excuse to not start if Mm. that's what you're doing. I find that I just need like the actual materials to make it work. Like, um, like I need the Polaroid, you know, I need the camera. Um, I shot like a series, like a woman's series on four by five. Um, but I shot it on a positive paper because I didn't want to have to like have the negative and then print because I don't have an enlarger, but I wanted it to be done, um, more like all in camera versus Mm -hmm. like, in you know, having to scan as much because of, you know, this project, I was like, (laughs) I don't want to scan a bunch of negatives, (laughs) just want to scan the final image. Um, you know, and I kind of like that idea of it not being able to be retouched. So for that, I just like, I already had film holders, but I just had to get the paper, you know, and, but if I didn't have film holders, I wouldn't have gotten a film holder. So I think just like the actual physical things you need. And then I think a lot of times, I mean, photographers are the longer you are in your career, the more stuff you build up, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, I never got rid of my four by five from college. And if I had, I would have never shot this series because I was very aware that mm. like if I sold it, I would never buy another one probably because what yeah. a weird, per- I mean, I, I I now have two, but I now I shoot on them all, all the time. But like what a weird purchase to get in a digital age, you know, like I'm going to go buy a four by five. Um, yeah, one of our editors just picked one up. It's like the biggest thing ever. Yeah, I have a but, travel one and then I have, okay. a, I have a big one. Um, but uh, But they're really fun and they're really cool. But like... Yeah. I think it is something you can be like, well, I can't do that until I get the right light or I can't do that until I get the right props or I can't do that until I get the right background. Like I shot a fun thing 
like early in COVID, mm-hmm. uh, kind of um, using props to kind of give my political opinions on what was happening like in okay, April. Cool. And I just had to like find stuff around my house. I had to be like, oh, I have like a campus trough. Like I'll use that as a background. And like my roommate has a bunch of like, she's really into crystals. So I'll like pull those into the thing, you know, and sometimes you just, I think forcing yourself to make something work Mm. is, is a good challenge. And I think sometimes you have to maybe lean into a direction that you weren't originally wanting. Mm -hmm. And maybe that won't be the final work. Maybe that'll be like a test thing. And maybe it'll help you get to the place where you can envision it better. Hmm. But I think, I think just challenging yourself. And I think if you're always are like, I have to have everything be perfect before I start, it's much harder to start stuff. No, it'll yeah. never happen. So do you think like having restrictions like that kind of pushes you to be more creative? Like, is that a safe thing to say? Or Yeah, maybe not more creative, but maybe more inventive or okay. like you figure stuff out more, maybe like. Uh, I just, I shot an outdoor portrait this weekend for somebody and like in the middle of that, this is how it happens often with me, but like in the middle of the night, I woke up and couldn't go back to sleep. And, um, I was like, oh, I think I could do this outside. I could like use my carport and I, I think I can use my flashes. I think I can put them on my pocket wizards and I can shoot it from my, and I have an umbrella now. So like, I don't need, cause I used to just have soft boxes. Yeah. And so I was like, so I can shoot it into the, and that's how I did it. I like set up my flash. I ran around my apartment for like two hours looking for this one hot shoe thing that screwed onto this thing that would hold my flash on the C stand. Yeah. And I was like, it's around here somewhere. I'd never used it, but I've kept it. And, you know, but like, it was fun to figure out a new problem. And Mm -hmm. like, I wouldn't maybe shoot it exactly like that again, but it did get me thinking like, oh, if I got a battery powered thing, which I never thought of, you know, like a, I could use it for camping, but I could also Mm -hmm. use it for, shoots and maybe it could be dual purposed and maybe this is a way that I can still work during COVID. I I could run around to people's houses and set up outdoor seamlesses, you know, or like, you know, whatnot. And if I had my own power supply, I could shoot with my strobe and I could shoot with my soft boxes and like a more normal setup for me, you know, but it was, it was fun to have to figure out a problem again. And that might be part of my producer brain that enjoys solving a thing and breaking yeah. it down and like finding a solution and like figuring out how to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it, I think it does push you in many ways too. you know, like I, I say often that I shoot a lot commercial, but I still really love shooting weddings. And I think shooting weddings keeps you really sharp with having to work with people who aren't models, who mm. aren't actors, who aren't talent, who don't know how to move. And so feel fairly uncomfortable in front of the camera. So it keeps you really sharp and communicating what you want them to do and like working hard to get that shot. And I think it also keeps you really, really sharp in natural daylight. Having to like go to a location and be like, oh, the sun is not exactly where I wanted it to be. So like, I can't quite do this in the perfect way that I envisioned, but oh, I'll flip them this way. And then the, 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 you know, like mm-hmm. you have to solve things so much faster in your head and so much more on the fly because you only have 30, 40 minutes you don't have six hours to set it no. up and then three hours to shoot it or whatever, you know? And so I think keeping different skills sharp um, is a, is a, is a good challenge. Yeah. No, that's, that kind of just like uh, clicks a bunch of things into place for me about you. Cause I was like, 
photography and like producing that's an interesting mix but yeah like I think what you're touching on is like that that fast pace like on your toes problem solving that comes with like producing mm-hmm. and like yeah like every everything's melting down and you're like okay we need to like figure this out right now um but what's been like how has like pursuing these like personal projects affected I guess your career growth as a photographer I mean I would always say to a very large degree that shooting the portraits at super serious show brought me back to photography Mm because it felt fun and natural again and then eventually like when I lost jobs and we were just doing super serious and started doing more producing like people would ask me to do like come second shoot this wedding with me oh can you shoot my portraits like oh can you do this like you know and so in a in a very big way without shooting super serious I don't really know if I would have come back to photography Mm -hmm. in the same capacity and because of producing comedy and shooting these portraits and kind of being known for them at least in Los Angeles you know community very you know um heavily I got work from that just in general you know like people had seen the photos or like knew of the series or like seen people's icons for the comedians or whatever and kind of always knew it came back to me and so I think it helped this series specifically helped launch a lot of early stuff in my career um you know and and definitely a lot of the key artwork that I've gotten is around comedy and with comedians and um I think that to a large degree a lot of the clients who hire me know my background in producing and working with comedians and know that I either A, already know the comedian that I'm shooting or B, like know how to work with comedians. Yeah. And, you know, it is a different thing and they are kind of their own special people and beasts to a degree, you know, like not a lot of them, even though it comes with the territory of being famous are very comfortable in front of the camera, you know? And so having someone who's just maybe chill and at ease and like has a little bit more of their wavelength, you know, is easier. Um, but I would say that a lot of my career in photography is because of comedy. Okay. Yeah, I find that, yeah. They're just really intersected in my case. (laughs) No, for sure. Um, yeah, but that thing about comedians is weird because it's like, they don't think twice about getting on stage, which is, and, and often like bombing, which is like, a horrible experience but then you put them in front of a camera and they're like um okay but then I do question. tease all of them when I shoot portraits and stuff for them they're like oh I need some editorial things or like I want you know like a non-shitty headshot but also something for my, cool for my website and to submit for festivals then they're like oh but I hate having my photo taken and I'll always be like you know in best case scenario <laughs> this is gonna happen a lot more in your career yeah and they're like, yeah, I'm still going to hate it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I guess it's just fair. That's coping. fair. That's yeah. fair. Just I don't like doing, strategy. I don't like doing podcasts, but I've had to do so many to promote the book. So. And you're doing great. And you're like oh, a thanks. professional. Thanks so and NPR is going to have you on soon. No. Some kind of weird American <laughs> thing. Um, okay. But then like, how do you, like, how do you find the balance between like everything that you're pursuing? Cause like, that's another thing I, hear a lot when people are like oh I want to do this personal project but I just don't 
have the time and it's like well figure it out if it's important for you I guess I mean it is a it is a struggle like super serious happened because it it was a thing that was also connected to a thing you know yeah like it was connected to a live show uh so it had like a dual purpose and a larger place in my life if it just had been like me as a photographer going around to backstage shows I don't know if it would have carried on as long Mm -hmm. or had the same dedication uh I have other personal projects and like random pieces of work in my practice that I'm working on but um they often do get shelved because of paid work Mm. and it sucks. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I have, I want to go back and be like, I love other photos from that shoot that I did with so-and-so and and I want to do a re-edit and I want to put them on my site because I think they're so cool, but it gets pushed even during COVID. It's, I've been like, I'm going to be able to do so much, (laughs) so much stuff. I can't leave my house. Um, but but it still gets shelved, you know, like yeah. things still happen and you find yourself still um choosing the jobs obviously that have money or clients or deadlines over that. Um I think that uh being organized is helpful mm-hmm. for me. Not forgetting like I keep things on the calendar that I still want to do. Even if I don't get to them, I'll just move them just so they're like always present. Mm -hmm. I like keep a notebook of things that I want to do and like keep kind of checking on them, um, keep brainstorming, keep like working on them, even if it doesn't feel super, that there's not like a lot of momentum at that moment with it. It doesn't mean that it's not in progress. And then knowing that like, there'll be a time that it's right to do it, you know, and right to kind of push it more and like, you know, accomplish this or accomplish that. but it is hard because you do have to prioritize clients and money because that's what yeah. allows you to live and pay rent and exist. Uh, um, but I think also burnout is a thing you have to balance. And I have to balance a lot with, you know, I have a company and a production company with three other partners and I have to balance that work with photo work with clients and then my own personal projects and so personal projects often get shelved, yeah. which is why I started retouching super serious show Polaroids once a year or twice a year because it, it, it just had to happen. And I couldn't, I couldn't give it to anybody else to do. It just yeah. felt too specific and too personal. And I just, by the time I think I, I just don't think I would ever be happy with because I'd already done so many of them. But, um, but you know, it's like, to a very large degree it is why I started using image salon was because I needed more time like I needed more time for more things so I let go of some of the things like retouching a client's you know mm-hmm. headshot if they needed something or and you know and then being able to just like go in and do the finishing of it or you know color like doing all my color for my weddings but I look at you know Mandy who does all my weddings is like part of my team you know like I, I don't look at her as just like this random person like she's somebody who's done weddings with me for years. And, you know, like, I, I just think of her as an extension of what my practice is in weddings. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, it's, you have to find ways to make time for yourself that allows you to be more productive. And then you have to relinquish things that you can, that allows you to be more productive. Yeah. You, know, you can't do, like you said, somebody could just do everything in the basement earlier. And I was like, what a nightmare. It was all I thought. Like how sad and lonely and stressful, 
you know, and like, you have to ask for help. You have to like, in my world, I have to ask for help. I have to bring in collaborators. I have to work with people to make this experience enjoyable because I don't want to be stressed out and alone through all of my deadlines and all of my projects, because that sounds like a terrible way to exist. And, you know, it's not the, it's not the end goal isn't what I care about. I want to do it. There's a lot of fun in between, you know, and it's, there's a lot of bullshit in between too, but there's also like a lot of fun, you know, to be had. And, and so it's, and why do it all by yourself? I don't know. I think if people bring in other people, they'll, they'll see that you don't have to be so stressed all the time. So true and cut because you brought up your editor Mandy who's by the way is the best and I miss very much since all of us are kind of like working remotely there's like mm-hmm. seven of us in the gigantic studio. <laughs> um, but I'm happy to hear you guys are all being safe yeah yeah we're being very safe um like what's kind of your advice for somebody that's approaching like outsourcing for the first time because it's like I think it's incredibly nerve wracking as a creative to delegate task and to step away from it. It is. I would say that um, pick a job that's not on deadline and that it's fine. You know, it's, it's fine. You have some time and space to work with it. Um, you know, so don't wait until like a week before the wedding is due or the portrait is due or the, you know, whatever is due. Um, I found early with Mandy, she was very patient with me. Um, I think I came to her with uh, probably too many words and thoughts, Um, but try and find ways to like clearly communicate. And if you can't articulate, then find examples, Mm. like find color references, like find things that you like. Um, It won't always match perfectly because your, your base photo might not be the same, have the same qualities as the base photo that you like, but like, um, I've, I always find that like trying to articulate or show what I want the end product to look like is really helpful. Um, and then you have to be patient. There's, it takes time to bring a collaborator in. It's not going to be bang out perfect right away. Or if it is the first time, it might not be the second time, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a process, but you're bringing somebody in who will hopefully work with you for a really long time. And, and that you you'll be able to trust and like when I have to get a second editor because I have a lot of weddings where Mandy's mm-hmm. out and I really need something it is still nerve-wracking again because I'm like well Mandy knows how I like things <laughs> you know yeah. and, it, and it's been fine you know for the most part and then when it's not it's just remembering that like it's okay like it's mm-hmm. fixable like it's not like somebody took a physical negative and screwed it up for you. Like it's digital, like it can be fixed. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's okay. Like remembering to breathe that these are people they're doing their best. Like, um, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of, I think when you collaborate and build out a team of treating people the way you want to be treated mm-hmm. and remembering mm-hmm. that like, they're, they're not trying to screw you over. They're not trying to do a bad job. They really are trying to do what you're paying them to do and what you want them to do. And, and it's just a process to get there sometimes. Yeah. So like patience goes a really long way and like understanding that like, okay, maybe I didn't communicate this well. Like maybe it's me, you know, like it's not that like, and so not to like always blame the person you're outsourcing something to, you know, I mean, sure. Are there people that are stuck at their jobs? Yes. 
you know, and you might encounter some of them, but, you know, I think that understanding that it's a two-way street still, you know. Mm. Well, and I think especially with, like, our approach, and I like what you're saying about, like, when you're bringing in a collaborator, because, like, that, that's really when I, like, shifted from, like, being an editor, like, I was just doing, like, the real estate stuff we were doing, so I wasn't having that back and forth with clients, which was, like, a different racket but then yeah like it is a it is is a relationship between the editor and their photographer and I think it's like you need to be investing like in that relationship and the communication because like otherwise it's like you you just don't know it's like the person who pieces out of a relationship you're like I don't love you anymore and it's like well you never (laughs) you never said anything um yeah but so the other thing is like you're, you are working with humans and I know like when I was editing like there would be times where I would get like a revision I'd be like what the hell is this like was I drunk like oh my god so like how do you and and I'm curious to hear because it's not often where I don't know uh, you have a moment to get like honest feedback about it but it's like when the ball does get dropped like how do you like handle that and approach it I think I've learned a lot of this from my partner, Joel. He has um, a very uh, big well of empathy, mm-hmm. which I think allows him to communicate more effectively and patiently than maybe my initial instinct is. Um, uh, I am still much more hot-headed than he is maybe initially. Yeah. like, And it takes me a little bit like longer to... Um, pull back and like you know see things but I think uh if I'm really unhappy about something it's just trying to like again I think just find a way to articulate it where you're not being mean like like you said like these are people (laughs) and I think there's ways to express disappointment frustration um you know when your expectations aren't met that can be done in a way that still keeps the relationship mm-hmm. and keeps things intact. And, and maybe not always, there are things that can go wrong that maybe do end relationships or for sure. But I think the goal should always be, if you want to keep working with these people to find a way to connect with them and articulate what about it you're upset about, what about you're disappointed mm. And it happens with me when clients come back to me and they're not happy with something, you know, I want to understand, I want to fix it for them. And then I want to do something to make them feel better about it, you know, like, um, which I think Image Salon's always been great at. It's like, there have been times where I, you know, I think early on where maybe I had to have a second editor or something and I got things back and I was like, I don't, and like, it's on deadline. I didn't give enough time. So it feels stressful for me, then I'm unhappy with it. And so then I stay up until four in the morning fixing it, you know, which, you know, all of your guys' literature is quite clear to not do, but sometimes you're on deadline (laughs) because you've really procrastinated or been busy. Yeah. Um, But then I will tell, like, I'll talk about it. And like, you know, Daniel and stuff, they've always been so great about getting back to you. I mean, like, look, I'm really sorry about that. Like, you know, we'll comp this or we'll take care of that or like, but then learning from that too, right? Mm -hmm. So like learning that if I'm going to have six weddings pile up on top of each other I kind of will email Manny and be like hey I got a lot coming your way soon 
nothing she can really do about it, but eventually she knows, you know, I'll be like, just so you know, just so you know, I'm going to have a lot, you know, and then, but also knowing that if I, if, you know, you guys are quite clear about like how your deadlines work and the rolling deadlines, if you send in a lot, you know, then being clear and articulate that I want somebody else, but I want to make sure that Mandy talks to them first, Mm -hmm. because that's, I found that that works better for us, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So like learning to, it's not... When something's bad and messed up and it comes back from you from an outsourcing or a collaborator, there's a couple of things. There's communicating correctly about how to fix it and address the problem and what made you frustrated and unhappy. It's looking at having like a self-inventory, looking at like what you did to help contribute to that. Like, was it because you were on a really tight deadline because, you know, you turned in the work so late that like they only had one shot to get it right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um so, and then like trying to prevent that, those things from happening again, like, you know, it's, and there's no use in like going back and reliving stuff that you can't fix. It's more helpful to like take stock of what happened and then figure out ways to move forward and prevent that from happening again. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. And it's almost like, almost like restructuring your approach or like workflow to like, like, so that help is like fitting into it, right? With like, for example, with us that, you know, like our uh, like turnaround time can be like a lot longer than like some other outsourcing solutions. And it's like, maybe, maybe extend out like when you're going to be handing off your images to your client so that it's not so stressful. I did that. Like I built in an extra two weeks and then I built in like a, okay, Mandy, this is your deadline to get this to Mandy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that you also have time. Like if it comes back and you want changes, you it's not due the next day. Yeah. You know? Because there are times Mandy sends me stuff. And and another thing that we did is like I asked her to send me samples ahead of time. Oh, okay. And so she'll send me a handful, not a lot. She'll take a handful from like every scenario. If there's two shooters, she'll pull each from each cameras, from all four cameras, you know? Um, And she'll send me a handful and I'll be like, okay, this is to this, this is this. Everything looks great. But then it gives her a chance to like make the adjustment. So then when I get the catalog and I'm looking through it, I'm not like tweaking things and like bad or whatever. Like it just, it's worked a lot better for us in the long run. And and I know she normally sends it to me like the day before she's going to send the catalog. And I know that the whole thing's already done, Mm -hmm. you know? But I also can be like, oh, hey, these look too magenta or their skin tone looks a little weird here. But I, I, I think it's helped in our process for her to have a chance then to adjust those before she sends them to me. Yeah. I, don't know if, I don't know if every editor does that. I don't know. But it's helped a lot in our workflow. Yeah. Um, and so like trying to find things. To, like, and I think that that started because um, we kept running into problems where I felt like we were really far off base when the catalog would get mm-hmm. to me. Um, and it helped just to kind of reset. I feel like now this far into it, I rarely have a ton of notes, but every now and then I'll be like, oh, this scenario, maybe with this camera or in this lighting is weird. Can we change this? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I get the catalog, I know it's probably great because we've already had those conversations. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Okay. I'm going to, um, bring it back to the book to kind of end this podcast <laughs> interview. Cause Yeah, this is, um, so like you shot like over like 1400 Polaroids or like something 
mm-hmm. insane. So I'm wondering, how do you approach calling and like curating work into a book or a portfolio? Mm. The book, it was pretty easy. I um, went through all the JPEGs from every show because the book is separated by, uh, it's separated a couple of different ways, but when I did the initial, it was separated just by shows. Now it's by talent because let's be real, it needed Mm -hmm. to get reorganized. Um, But, uh, and then I just pulled my, I pulled in a giant pile of my favorites, like all of my favorite photos that I could. And then from Mm. there, you know, because there are ones that like are, are nice, but maybe not my favorite. Um, and no offense to anybody who's wasn't my favorite, but um, and then from there, um, it kind of was narrowed down between like me and my publishers and stuff. So I didn't, you know, and then I just tried to fit as many into the book as possible, like just sort of really <laughs> squeeze them in there. Uh, just as many on a page as you know, just as many as I could. Um, yeah. But uh, so it was hard. Um, I wanted to, with the book, I wanted to find things that like complemented each other. So like there's some, there's like a, like a couple grid pages where it's like groups or duos, um, or like I would find like a bunch of people who would like stuck their tongue out or like use their hair as a mustache. And so I would kind of put those together, mm-hmm. or like photos that I thought paired really well together that were funny to me. Um, you know, like there's a great one of like, Moshe Kasher with his hair over his face and Megan Keister and I just always felt like for whatever reason like Moshe's Moshe's photo was like exuding like the energy of Megan mm-hmm. um like the messiness and like the kind of punk rockness of it you know yeah. and so um I thought that that was but that's just probably for me so I thought that that was fun um there are other fun things that I did like after the um the Brody Stevens section I put uh, a photo of Dean Fleischerkamp who was the director of his series and James Adomian I'm raising a beer glass as a toast um but yeah but then I just put other ones so that's like a like a little treat just for me because mm-hmm. you know I thought that that would be fun. Um, but there's other ones that I thought would be silly to pair next to each other, you know, that I would I would find, um, you know, uh, amusing later um, or that I thought were really goofy together. So that's kind of how I did the book. Um, for calling for weddings and like lifestyle shoots and stuff, I try to do an edit based on like instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pare down from there. Uh, I'm not as, I wish I was better at like flagging them and like rating them at different levels during my first edit. Uh, And then also like picking out ones that I want for like possible publication and blogs or articles while picking the final ones. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of photographers are very skilled at that. I am not. (laughs) Um, I have to look through them so many times. Um, In fact, I always inevitably cut some after I get them back from Image Salon, uh, which seems crazy because you really, 
well, I'm paying for things that I won't ever use. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually sometimes even cut them after I put them out on the site and then I like reorder them into telling the story of what yeah. I'm telling. And I'm like, oh, actually, I hate this one now. It's in there. Um, so I base most of those edits on like story and vibe and feel. And uh, a lot of what I aim to do is to try to tell a story of someone's day with weddings in the most concise amount of images without cutting anything, you know, trimming the fat, but not cutting any of the meat, but also um, in, a, in, a, in kind of a format that tells the story of their day um, without just a bunch of extra stuff added on. Like they don't need a whole bunch of extra stuff, but like, yeah. but I don't want them like lots of times you're like, oh, you can cut that photo. Nobody will miss it. Like you have it in another way or another format or something. No one's going to miss this photo of this or this or this, you know, and then if they do, they'll ask you for it. But um, uh, yeah, photo organization and, and calling and, and figuring out the way that your brain works around that is, is an interesting uh challenge and one that I encourage anyone who is young to figure out quickly and early uh and it'll make your life so much faster but um, I don't think there is a right or wrong way it's just whatever fits you so no and I I think that's kind of the place to end this interview is like <laughs> pursue creative projects take the time to discover who you are maybe go into the wilderness and I don't know um yeah okay whatever whatever your wilderness is yeah whatever whatever you need this conversation left me really missing being able to attend live events and the deep supportive community that tends to form around shows like Super Serious. I think my main takeaway from my chat with Mandy is just to start and being consistent. You really don't know where things will lead. Music is Town Wizardry by Philip Creamer. Phil, I'm really glad we're back at this podcast thing that we do. Also, drop us a line. Let us know if there's any other photographers you would like us to talk to. 